Welcome to a bonus episode of One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and in September of this year, an incredible creative who has profound fingerprints all across this incredible work, the legendary George Romero disciple and editor and collaborator with Al Pacino, Pasquale Pat Buber passed away. We were so blessed that in the wake of his episode of Joe Lynch and Adam Green's The Movie Crit Podcast, that he graciously accepted an invitation to come on the show. So... As you guys who've listened to all the episodes so far would know, it's absolutely and utterly bucket list stuff. He chose his favourite moment of the entire film, which, for those listening, may have already caught it. Uh, You know, there there was a a brief bonus uh, episode where I played an excerpt from the Movie Crypt podcast, which Pascal talked about his favourite moment. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you an early flash forward in this movie in order to celebrate the life of Pat Buber who passed away. He was 72 years of age. He was incredibly generous with his time and incredibly supportive of this project. And you're going to hear me ask him to come back on the show And we had been communicating about him coming back on the show. But unfortunately, he wasn't able to fulfill that that promise that I know he would have kept. So uh, it's a a quieter uh, intro and a, a less enthusiastic intro than probably you're used to on this show. Um, but... I'm incredibly grateful and honoured that we have one of his last lengthy interviews about this great, you know, this great work of art that he contributed to. Um, and you'll get to hear, as I did, um, what a what a just what a gem of a human being he is. Um, a huge thank you to Joe Lynch, who you guys that have been listening to, you know, one of the double episodes of the high scene and we we closed out the episode so you'll be hearing this episode in sequence after in the middle of uh, those two joe lynch episodes which i think is appropriate because joe there is no bigger pascal booper fan in the entire world than joe lynch um and uh i'm i'm incredibly grateful that you know joe's you know incredibly infectious passion for pascal's work um uh convinced him uh, to be part of One Heat Minute and be part um, of, of of this journey with all of you. So what you're going to listen to now is episode 152 of One Heat Minute. Um, it will be reposted in sequence, so for everyone playing at home um, who are just following along with the episode sequences, they can, uh, they can fill it. But for those of you who have been sort of passionately um, um, following along, um, this is a little window into the future of the, the, the episode arcs, but... Um, just hearing from Pat Buba, um, uh and, and, and re-listening, putting this together um, has been a, a real uh, 
a real melancholy but very very um, enriching experience so to all of his family particularly his wife Zilla um, if you do get a chance to listen to this uh, thank you um, and and now uh, we'll kick off the show as per normal and you can hear the incredible the dearly departed the absolute gem that was Pat Boober. This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to One Heat Minute. I could not express to you in words how amazing this experience is for me, the person I'm about to talk to. In my wildest dreams starting this project, I never thought we would talk to key creative people who contributed to the movie, but today on One Heat Minute for episode 152... I'm talking to the editor, one of the editors, Mr. Pasquale yes. Buber. Thank you, Joe Lynch. Pasquale Buber, welcome to One Heat Minute. It is an absolute Thank honor you. and a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Um, it's my pleasure to be here, and I appreciate what you're doing because, you know, I think it's a phenomenal, you know, I, perhaps a little insane, but a phenomenal <laughs> task that you set aside for yourself. And, you know, for an editor taking each minute separately and analyzing it is, I, I listened to, I did listen, go back and listen to, uh, you know, a couple of your episodes. And the depth of knowledge that you, that you and your guests have about this film is just, it's insane. It's, it's outstanding. And I will, uh, for full disclosure, you know, uh, this has been, uh, what, it was 95? Yeah. It's been a long time. I have, I've, I went to the Academy screening of the film which is the first time I had seen it in, a, in many, many years. But your, your, your knowledge of this film right now, you know, my memory banks, a lot of them are gone <laughs> about this film. What happens is when you finish a movie, you know everything about it. And then when you start a new film, you kind of just reformat your drives and start again from fresh. Yes. But one of the things, but one of the things that, that this, just talking about this reminded me is that the assistants, uh, we would hang around on when we had some downtime down on, on the soundstage. And do trivia contests, and it was like, um, what was the flight number of the Cessna? Uh, what cell block was breeding in? You know, and, and we'd go to these phenomenally intricate uh, um, trivia questions. And because everybody had seen the film and screenings and mixing and cutting, uh, we all we all actually did have answers for it. Oh my but, god! Uh, that guys, would be my favorite you, trivia night ever to be. At. I'd probably lose with all those guys who'd seen it cut a thousand times, but I would just—I'd be taking notes frantically with every answer. But that was twenty-five years ago. <laughs> yeah. Synapses, synapses were out. Everyone, you know. <laughs> well, we are going to watch. So, uh, as I said right from the top, Pascal Weber was on the Movie Crit podcast doing a fantastic 
almost career retrospective bookending Heat, which is Joe Lynch's one of Joe Lynch's favorite films, um, and Dawn of the Dead, and talking about his relationship with the the horror master and just a, a key influencer of a, a stack of cinema, social horror, and just horror genre in general, George Aramero. So. In that episode, there was a brief fleeting moment where sort of Pascal reminisced about one particular minute that he loved because he cut it and he talked about it being, when he actually cut it together, it was actually one of the first takes of this cut. So we're going to have a a little listen to it right now. You guys are going to listen to a nice high def version. We're going to watch it again really briefly together. Pascal's watched it and then we're going to come back and unpack it. And then beyond that, we're just going to gush with Pasquale about his amazing work and talk about all the things that he can remember from Heat. So thank you so much. Have a listen, and here we go. She picked her place. It's not right what happened to her. No, it's not. Is there any way that it could work out between us? I wish I could say yes, you know. But in the end... You know, it's like you said. That is a magnificent minute. Yeah, the, the, the uh, it, you know the the facial expressions. I mean, that's such a uh, unforgiving shot in a lot of ways. You know that uh, of Al. I mean, there's there's no there's no room for any air. That is full screen. Yes. And uh, Dante is you know Dante is phenomenal, but the way that that scene is staged as to when it when somebody would walk past the frame and when people would look at each other. It was just, it's all between uh, the, the two actors, who, who are very good friends. I mean, they, they, they're both from New York and they've worked together before. But when you see the little subtle things that, El, in that scene, Al takes chewing gum to an art form. Yes. If you, if you just watch the way he chews, because he, does, he doesn't chew gum a lot of times. Sometimes he doesn't, but not, not as, a, as a habit. But in that, just the pacing of the chew and the looks of his eyes, and you can see every layer that's going on with him about but he gets the call on a phone and he puts it down. But then she, you know, uh, the the realization of coming to that line about, you know, you you were right. All I am is is what I've been going after. I'm I'm no different than the people I'm chasing. And that realization is, you know, to to be able to express that it's something he knew, but he verbal Hannah verbalizes it there. And uh, there's just there's just so much. There's there's a little pause. I always and I'm glad you showed it again because it reminded me of this. Right before he says, it's like you always said, and he looks away to the thing, and then he put looks back at her, and he lowers his voice, and it's done in a whisper. You know, there's a great little thing at the end too, when he finally, when when she releases him, and, and he and he he goes, and uh, as as he gets up, she she does a little wave with her hand, just, yeah. and then that look that he does when he looks back at her. There's a kind of shit-eating grin on his face, but because he knows he's he's released in a certain way, he can get back to what has been burning inside of him. And uh, and then that run down the stairs, which is 
you know, man descending stairs. Remember, that we had to lower the production. We took out all the production audio over there in there in a foley because it was. <laughs> it was he, he goes down the stairs so fast. Yeah. That, but, I, I, love, I, love what, I love what you talked about with Justine there. So with Diane Venora, she's also – she's such a, a striking, beautiful woman. And in so yeah. much of the movie, she's so, even in when she's – when they've had the, uh, a, a big breakup moment where Ralph is at the house, she's still very – Ralph. Except, Ralph. Yeah. She's exceptionally put together. And in this moment, she's pure vulnerability. There's no makeup. Yeah. There's no artifice to her hair. And – there is a sense that in this moment, and I love this about her performance, it's just this aching. I know that, and she knows she's right. And, and she says, is there any way we can work it out? And I love that. I look at her face and I think she knows what the answer needs to be. And that's what that great, you talk about that, just the beautiful action and reaction and that energy that's going back and forth between them is that Vincent for a moment has to feign a pause. He's like, I know this is denial. This is this is a moment where I could say yes, everything's going to work out. But it's like in that split second that you reference, I feel like a whole ten years or five years or a year flashes through his yep. head of what is this relationship going to be like, and then he has to the the gum is like him literally chewing on that that information and coming to terms with it and looking at her and going, it's like he said, like you know this. I don't even need to tell you this, but you know yes. this. All I am is what I'm going after. And it's such a great scene. I love this is the frustration and the brilliance of this format is you take the Edie and Neil scene and there's none of the self-awareness. Like Neil's like, I want, I want you, I want you to come with me. And she's like, yes, I will come with you. She agrees. And you immediately, you feel sick because you're like, this is, this is not going <laughs> to, something is not right. And in this moment, as sad as as heartbreaking it is, I feel you just go, yeah, that is in this moment, he's actually made the right choice to kind of set her free because he knows what his destiny yeah. is. Yeah. And that this comes after the, uh, when he rushes, uh, rushes into the hospital and she, she witnesses, she, she's hurt. You know, he doesn't talk about what he does for a living, No, but she's, she's, she actually gets to witness it. He comes into that emergency room and takes complete command and control yes. of the entire emergency room. And commanding this, I want this, and I need an incubator, you know. And and she's there, and she's absorbing it. She's you know, she's just aware of the fact that this guy does know, you know, there's something to him. That he does know what he's does know what he's doing. And this, of course, comes I think three scenes or so after the uh, I gotta, I, I you know, I have to screw Ralph for closure scene. You know, with, <laughs> yes, yes, and it's kicking a, the kicking the TV, kicking the TV out of the car, and and then the. And then can I can I ask you? This is a theory I've had as well. The TV scene. Do the people at the bus stop know that they're in a movie? Because I love that scene where he's so frustrated he kicks his TV out of the car. But every time I've watched it, and I've watched that scene many times in preparation for this uh, uh, for this show, and just in general. And I feel like the people at the bus stop are like, is that Al Pacino kicking a TV out of the car? Like they feel like they don't know that that's a guy. They don't know he's an actor. I don't know what it is. I, I just every I get that sense when I watch that scene that it's like I don't even know if this bus stop was prepared to as actors. They're just being shot sort of secretly by a camera down the road. I mean, the, the, it's shot multiple times. I and mean, there's there's a when the car leaves and the door 
yes. door automatically closes as he fills out. The guys are still there. Yeah. You know, so that, and that wasn't shot. It, it wasn't shot. I don't, you know, I'm sure they went in and inserts and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe they didn't know he was going to kick the TV up. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'd, I'd have to, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure of it, but I'm pretty sure that they probably were there. <laughs> they were there. Um, so, yeah, you were talking, I mean, it's, and we're so close to ultimately the epic climax to this movie. And it feels like these are like emotionally climactic moments. So when you guys are cutting it together, was it always going to be orchestrated like this, that we, we just never lost touch of like the, the, the deep like personal and emotional connections to these people as it was being, as it was building towards this climax? Is that how you guys were thinking about it when it was constructed? Michael yep. was, you know, the, the, uh, if I could get, can I get wonky for a minute? Here? Get, get wonky. Okay. Please. This was um, this was the this was in the primitive Stone Age days of nonlinear editing. This was the first um, first film Michael did on nonlinear system. Yes. Uh, I had actually I did a film the, the previous year uh, with Al called it was called a Shakespeare project at that time and ended up being Looking for Richard. Yes. And I had cut on a, a cut on a nonlinear system. And then I went on to Casino while they were in Las Vegas, and that was that was Scorsese and Thelma's first experience on nonlinear. And I came back, and then and then we did Heat. So so just I, pause I, for one second, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. Pasquale just said he was cutting Casino with Thelma and Martin Scorsese. So we oh, can all just to savor that for a brief second, and now let's move back into the story. <laughs> the um, but any and I told you that not because not for my resume, but for the fact that we were all learning how to deal with the new structure of nonlinear editing. Yes. Because in addition to the fact that it was that you could call up things instantly, at that time there were very physical limitations. Uh, we were using Lightworks, and it was an IBM-based system. It needed SCSI drives, and SCSI drives only at that time held, I think, less than a – it was megabytes. It wasn't gigabytes. Yes. So the amount of storage on each drive was limited. Plus, you could only have seven of them tied to the to the, to the editing machine at one time. So you had these things called towers, and you'd have to un, unplug the tower and bring a new one in and do it. So everything was very, very fragmented because you didn't have all the material in front of you at all times. Yes. We worked. Uh, Michael would go from we had Michael would go from room to room with the editors. He would run the film in his mind, knew what point he was, and kind of describe it to us. Um, because we, we couldn't even watch, you know, we'd go in uh, the other guy's rooms and watch things, but still watching the whole flow of it was only, it was in Michael's mind Yes. until we started screening. And then once we started screening, that's, that's when we started knowing, knowing how to, knowing the shape of things. And, uh, there was this, you know, there was this drive because I had, I did the scene of, uh, when it, when he bring her to the emergency room and the first waiting room scene and this scene. And one the, something happened after that, and somebody else did the, the was doing the hotel scene, and so we had to inter, you know eventually intercut the scenes, and that was the first time we saw how uh, how it was all working. But Michael would Michael had he would come into the room and do this, and, <laughs> and figure out exactly where where he was at that particular time in the movie, and and talk talk about the energy and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, but once we started screening it, and once we started seeing the whole process, then then we knew as editors, how to focus in and how to, how to keep the drive, how to keep it going. From a technical perspective, and I guess this is great for anyone who's listening, when you, when you finally have, I guess, an assembly cut that you're screening to sort of go, okay, this is what it looks like, how much 
how much more uh, uh, does do things drastically change in those moments? Like, do you would you have this massive assembly cut and go, well, the tone of that particular take, we need to recut the whole thing because the energy dips in a wrong way. Does that does that happen pretty significantly, or did it? Happen it happens, yeah. That happens uh, non-linear or when, when you're cutting. Because you still, like my first assemblies as an editor, you know, I would cut each scene. And once I was happy with the scene that I knew I could mas- I, I can massage it uh, and, and make changes to it later, I would put it away and not look at it. Yes. Until I watched the whole film. Yes. Because a scene does not exist, without, which is very, no, no offense to people who are doing this one minute at a time. <laughs> you know, a scene doesn't exist in, in its own terms. It has to have the rhythm and structure of what precedes it and what, what's going to follow. And so you've heard it now. And Pascual Buber recommends listening to all 170 completed episodes in, back to In back. order, at one time, <laughs> without, without getting up. <laughs> the only way to do this. <laughs> oh, the insanity yeah. of this project continues. All right, great. So, yeah, so you're, you're in that moment and, you've, and you'll have, you're like, this scene works, but if I need to change the tone, I've got, I've got options for myself. And, and uh, at that time, too, we were, we were screening dailies on film, projected yes. dailies. This was Scott uh, uh, 233 Anamorphic. So we, we would see widescreen dailies and we got the impact of dailies. But we were still, and as editors, we were get, getting accustomed to cutting on video yeah. because you're looking at video monitors. And there is a difference with the, what, the amount of information you get from any given video frame versus the information you get from film frames. So the other big transition we all had to get accustomed to was making the transition from seeing something played back on a TV monitor to seeing it on a big screen. Yeah. And that was always, you know, uh, you know, until there's a, the vocabulary started building up among editors that you knew how to make that translation. Uh, but it, uh, it that, that's also another kind of, you know, rude awakening. But at that time on heat, they don't do this anymore because people don't are not shooting film as much. But we conformed after we had a certain percentage of the film cut. We they started the assistant started conforming the work print. Yes. So then we could actually screen a projected work print. You know, so you always had an, an idea of what you what you're leaving in your little 21 inch, 13 inch Sony, and what you're going to see on a you know a widescreen TV. I mean, a widescreen, a regular widescreen. So. You're cutting this scene. Let's go back to the scene. This is one of your favorites. And how do you remember offhand how many takes there were before but that you had to watch? Is it is and, and my other question is, is it rare then when you see the first take that you just sort of I imagine you must go, God, we can't have nailed it so perfectly in just one take. You, you're like, oh, I have to see every take. No, it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily. I didn't mean that they only they only shot one take. Yeah, it was one of the scenes where my first cut. Ah, oh, you first cut for a long time. Yes, because the material was there, and you know these—it's probably from a couple of different takes. But the material was there, and it just—it was—it's well written, and well shot, and well acted, which makes an editor's job much easier. Uh, but I, I do remember as I was editing it, just being—you know—and uh, I had done—you know—as I said, I did looking for Richard Dell, and I knew him as an, you know the power of him as an actor. But actually watching that scene. There's just so many little nuances within his eyes and with his face. And just, you know, he's totally, there's so much more going on besides just saying the words. Yes. I mean, he's always, his eyes are always thinking. You know, you can always see that there's a process going on of what he's doing. And there's massive chunks of this long movie where people aren't saying a word of dialogue. Everything's being conveyed in gestures and 
expressions and sort of, as you said, darting eyes to seeking out information. It's almost like looking it up in their own hard drive in their brain and sort of, you know, chunking whether this is going to be the right decision and then going back. And uh, so, yeah, he's he, this is one thing I uh, am desperate to do and I haven't, I haven't, and in Australia there hasn't been one. Maybe we'll have to get one organized for the podcast, but it's actually seeing if we can get a 35 mil print of the original or like a new 4K print of the definitive edition to actually see it on a big screen and sit in a cinema on a beautiful projection and watch the mastery of sort of these nuanced performances right up close and seeing them on a massive canvas because I think so many people are used to watching them now on home video or even in good setups, even with yeah. a projector. They just it doesn't it doesn't seem to hold a candle to what that ex- yeah. that cinematic experience would have been for this it, film. It, it, it is. It's like the first time I saw Searchers on a big screen. Oh. You know, the uh, and and he he is that film because Dante uh, Michael was very has a very strong color structure. Yes. Uh, he, when I, when I first first time I met him in an office for the interview. He had all these photos on a wall from magazines, and they were arranged in colors from blues to different things. So he had a whole color scheme about how the movie was going to look, and uh, and Dante uh, obviously you know was able to capture that too. So there there is there's uh, Michael's an architect in, in in a lot of ways. He sees things architecturally. Yes. In shapes and curves, and you know how how things mathematically change and. Uh, it, it's very, you know, it's very interesting, very interesting work of him that way. But he has, you know, he has that vision of the, of the film in his mind. And and so it, it, unfortunately on, you know, watching it on an iPad doesn't do <laughs> it, what it was intended to be. No, not at all. Um, and uh, that, <clears throat> I'm sorry. Oh, no, sorry. I was just going to say, um, so when you're cutting this together, this magnificent thing, when do you realize that, wow, this is like, and is there a point where you said, wow, this is kind of a, this could be a masterpiece. Is, is, is there, is, was it a particular moment when you were cutting a particular scene or was it finally looking at an assembly cut and going, holy dooly, these, you know, obviously Al, you'd work with him before. Al's absolutely at the top of his game. Diane Venora. I mean, Ashley Judd, Val Kilmer, yeah. De Niro. Like it's just a murderer's row of phenomenal performers, all, all guns blazing. Um, really just delivering every scene. So was there a moment that you're cutting it together and you're, they're going, wow, this is, this is something incredible. Or is it even at that early stage when you're in a room with Michael Mann and he's got the color schemes figured out that you're like, this could be pretty special. Uh, it was at the premiere. Yeah. When my wife cried. <gasps> what scene? The final scene? At the end of the, no, at the, the, end the, of the, the final. Yeah. I mean, look, I cry every time I see it myself uh, in that scene. We had, you know, I mean, I was away from home a lot, obviously, on the hours. And uh, she, she would just always make that thing about, this better be worth it. And then, <laughs> uh, at the end of it, she grabbed my hand and said, it was worth it. Oh, so I knew that. That is That magic. was a special movie. Yeah. Uh, and that does, you know, the, it, we were pretty busy up to the end, you know, uh, and... You know, we had screened it, and it screened it. I screened it. Went to New York and screened it with the press people. Uh, we only had two preview screenings in uh, in Pasadena, and that was you know, and they were kind of perfunctory screenings because they they people knew that the film was working. So, uh, but you still had to get in front of an audience in case there were things that you know that, that bumped that you weren't aware of. Yes. 
but and uh, and they both and nobody. The thing is, in that both screenings is for two hours and whatever it is, there was no movement and not that many people left the room. You know, uh, and and uh, that was a, a test of that they, they they kept they, you know they kept their they kept their asses in the seats, and which is important for a long running movie. Yes, because the, the the rhythms the rhythms can get a little a little odd, you know, where people's kind of metabolism goes when you're watching the movie. There's so many films, but, and you would know this better than anyone as an editor, and I imagine it's even more acute for you when you're watching some films. Is you're in there, and if if the pacing's off, and if the editing's rough, and if the script is too flabby in certain moments, and they haven't been able to tighten it, it's almost an uncontrollable impulse to flick your hand up and look at your watch and go, "What is going on?" And I can't ever remember any time I've ever looked at my watch watching Heat. It's it, there's there's not a moment you want to take your eyes off the screen, and even in the slower, more intimate moments, they're still fascinating. They're still absolutely yeah. they're so engrossing that you 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 don't want to take your eyes off it. And once you're in that middle heist, which is kind of the a semi-climactic moment in that middle of the, you know, sort of late middle of the film, it, you can't even believe where you are and there's still so much to go. So it's even more tense in that final sort of half an hour, that build-up, which is right where this scene falls, right to the end. It's just, it's rolling. It's got such an, a phenomenal momentum. Yeah. <clears throat> but in that thing, there's also, and I just, just another thing that I've always loved about this film was, I said like Al makes chewing gum an art form, but <laughs> the double take that he does when he recognizes uh, uh, he recognizes that Amy's sitting by herself in a car, yes. he puts it all together. It, it, it's just a double take he does, and it's so subtle. It's just phenomenal. Um, the um, the the communal experience of watching the film with with uh, with a lot of pupils, it, you know, it, it, that's what that's what it, it it's really. That's where you really know, you know, what's working, what's not working. So you work, you know, you've worked with Al a couple of times. When Al watched it, we're in there at the premiere, and you guys are all watching it together. Like, what do those guys say about it? Did you, did you get some insights from those guys that were really happy with it? Because I, I, you know, obviously in the latest twentieth anniversary piece, you hear them talking about it, being really proud of it. But at the time, were they like, "Wow, this is actually," you know, I the, um, the the uh, the actor they they see the movie before premieres. In fact, yeah. usually at the premiere. You know, they, they, they'll run around they, yeah they go out and then they come back for the party afterwards but you, they've seen the movie as courtesy screenings way before the premiere uh and you know so they have their own uh you know their own and then they have their own meetings with with, with the directors um and i'll you know at, at that time i was i was we were still doing looking for richard <coughs> and i would um we had an there was an editor working in los angeles on it so I was participating with Elle on that while we were while we were doing heat. I was younger then; I could do that. <laughs> uh, but then then we went and, and finished looking for Richard. Uh, and the other the other big release I ever got was because uh, looking for Richard was we made that in the editing room. It was kind of a, a theory Elle had, and we kind of you know we we worked on it. And then uh, we screened it at Sundance for the first time. We put it in front of a big audience, and we we realized that it was actually a movie. Yeah. Yes. It was just kind of this thing we were we were working out in my house here in Los Angeles, just uh, on a computer, and had fun, but didn't know what you know how it was going to all put together. <laughs> yes. And uh, but it's actually you know, it's one of my favorite movies because it was actually as an editor because it was actually written in the editing room, literally. Yes. You know, we we're making it up as we went along. You know, El yeah. had the vision. He did have the vision in his mind. It was a question of pulling it together. 
So Michael Mann, he's got the entire script. When you're interviewing to edit, are you were you ever like reading the script and going, okay, I sort of see what this is going to be. This is the scope is going to be this massive, um, uh, or, or is that sort of you're there participating on set, checking things out and going, okay, seeing the dailies. All right, this is what's going to happen. What's your process as far as um, being being in that sort of uh, that role? Uh, the uh, Michael Michael was. Uh, was very big on dailies. I mean, dailies were at that time a big event because that's when he would give out a lot of notes. <coughs> Excuse me. And Michael had a micro cassette, and he would dictate as he was watching. He would talk a lot into the micro cassette as he was watching dailies, and then we could transcribe, and then you'd get those notes the next day. Um, the uh, it, it was very very quick because actually I was working. Uh, uh, the Dove Honing, who was who was had worked with Michael. On a lot of his early movies, was still tied up on Batman. At yes, the time. and so um, I came in, or I came in early. I came in very early on it, on, on Heat. But they had already been shooting for uh, a few days, for I think like ten days, maybe a week. Um, the uh, and so and and then we we were again just setting up equipment. So it took a while to set up the nonlinear system because again we there, there weren't a lot of assistants. Who knew the electronic end of it? Yes. You know, so uh, we were, you know, it was always scrambling trying to trying to figure out how to bridge into this new world that we we're going to deal with. Um, and so, uh, but and we still had the cams, we still had film in you know, the cutting rooms because we'd still watch watch film. But the um, the process felt slowly because of, because of the uh, the, uh, this, the way that they the, the out of orderness that they started shooting. And you know, I think the first scene. I think the first scene I really cut was the BJ scene. Yeah, I was the first one. Yeah, it was shot in multi, a lot of multi cameras on the uh, scene where he goes down and meets. Uh, you know, he, he hears the word slick. Yes, I think I think that club was called BJ's. I think that's what that's one. And now, th- thankfully, perfectly, you lead in to the secret moment that you revealed on the Movie Crit podcast, and I would love if you could talk more about it. So, on the twentieth anniversary of Heat the Christopher Nolan Q&A with Michael Mann and the entire cast, it was revealed that uh, Vincent Hanna was originally conceived of as a cop character who took drugs, including copping a bit of cocaine. And at that famous BJ scene with that really uh, really iconic security guard uh, that Pacino comes up and goes, give me all your money. That moment was a, a scene where Vincent cops some cocaine. Is that right? Yeah. That's, well, it's actually scripted. That's why I was, I was, the, I was, you know, didn't know why it was, you know, it was a surprise to people, but <coughs> excuse me, it was scripted that way. Yes. And he goes up to, and that guy actually is a guy who owned, here's another weird story about it. The, the guy playing the doorman was a guy who owned the dog. Well, I don't know. He, he, oh, he the, wasn't the, 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 do, the dog fighting uh, rink that the, they shot. <laughs> Holy dolly. There's some story about that. I'm not sure what it was, but I remember there was some story about it. Wow. But he goes up to him, give me all he got. And there's there's a lot of jesting that's going on between the two of them. And uh, the um, and then he says, who takes care of you? And the, the, the doorman shakes his hand and slips him a little pad of Coke that he does in the elevator on the way down the steps. And uh, that, you know, it was, it cut, it cut, it cut you off pretty early on. Um, there's always there in in that scene and because 
in, in the BJ's, there was, Michael was always worried about a, uh, it, it dying in pace there. Yes. Uh, we had, matter of fact, we, our first screening in Pasadena, first preview screening, um, we sat there and we had been up for uh, God knows how many days in a row mixing. And we watched it and thank God, you know, and maybe I'll get some sleep tonight before the screening. And this was like two o'clock in the afternoon when we had a run through. And Michael comes up to me and, and puts his arm around me and says, you know, there's a cut I can see in the uh, in the BJ scene where we can cut from this piece of dialogue to this piece of dialogue. Uh, it was in the exchange between Tom Mulk uh, and Al. And I said, oh, yeah, it's interesting. Now it's, I'll get on that tomorrow morning. And I looked at him and I realized he didn't mean tomorrow morning. <laughs> now. So we had to take the film off of the platter. I had to go through, I was in the editing room, the projection room, you know, flipping through film, pulling, pulling a, a section out of the film. Uh, we cut maybe 30 seconds out of that scene. But it did, and it did help the pace. And he was always worried about the pace in that scene. So we kept, we kept massaging it because it was just where that scene happened in the film. Yeah. The, uh, now the, the the reason for cutting out the coke thing, I, you know, I really don't know. It was an early decision, uh, and um, yeah, that was uh, it. It you know, and the two things I always thought is that yes, it, it would be interesting to see the film with that scene in it, whether or not it make a difference. The other thing, if anybody ever had a hundred and thirty million dollars and didn't know what to do with it, would be to reshoot this film and change the change the two characters. Oh my God. Uh, have Al play Hannah. Uh, have Al play uh, Neil and, and, and De Niro play Hannah. And and flip the whole cruise. Have Kilmer as a cop. Have yeah. uh, Drucker. You know, just flip flip the entire script and have everyone playing the opposite characters. Play, I think they could do it. Um, oh my god! Imagine. Yeah, it's on a repertoire, not a repertoire company that could do it that way. Oh, that would be. The, uh, and that was, you know, the uh, the uh, that was. Oh God, what's his name? Breeden, um, Dennis Hasbro. Yeah. That's the first time. First time I, because I, I did those scenes of uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the thing. It's the first time I'd seen. I didn't know who the actor was. You know, he was this big, imposing man who had such a great look on camera. Oh, amazing presence. And now, you know, he's been president of the United States. He's sells <laughs> yep. insurance. You know, great guy, but very, very talented actor. Was that something uh, on set? But there was. A, was that something you guys ever talked about? Like, oh God, I would love to see us just run a scene with Alice, with Alice McCauley and, and and De Niro. Was that like a sort of um, with oh, you? Oh no, no, guys? no, no. That's that, that's my own perverted thoughts <laughs> you know, that I have while sitting in the cutting room. Because uh, it's it just you know it's always, it's always interesting that what what I mean they are it's perfectly cast the way it is. Yes. <clears throat> but you have two guys who are capable of doing so much. Yes. Uh, that it would just be interesting to see what the dynamic, how the dynamic, all the dynamics would change. Have you heard about this Heat prequel novel that Michael is writing? No. Yeah, there's a Heat prequel novel, and uh, uh, that uh, that apparently he's writing about both characters. So that you know how 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 McCauley got to where he was, obviously leading up into the events of Heat, and then how Vincent became Vincent, the top cop in Robbery Homicide. Um, and then somewhere, somewhere along the line, and I don't know if it's just the rumor mill, but they say, oh, he's writing the novel with the intention that eventually he may shoot it as a, like a, as a prequel film. And so then it starts to be like, who's going to play those guys? Um, who, who would play those guys as young men? Oscar- well, you know, right now they're playing themselves in, uh, uh, as young men in, a, in a, uh, a film called, um, 
Oh God, I forget the name of it. But they are playing themselves as younger people. I think they're doing face. Oh, the uh, the new Scorsese movie. Yes. Uh, uh, the, the, is it the Irishman? The Irishman. The Irishman. Yes. The Irishman. That's right. The pain houses. Yeah. But they're they're doing the the, the face changes. The um. Uh, but you know Neil is a real character, and he actually yeah. his name is Neil. Neil McCauley, yeah. He's from Chicago, and he actually killed somebody named you know in a hotel somewhere. Yes. I think that the character based on Hannah is not his name wasn't Hannah, but he no. he's based on a, he's based on another person than Michael. Because Michael, you know, all the stuff comes comes out of his you know his growing up in Chicago. Because I think originally he was state was in Chicago. Yeah, and then they changed they changed a lot. And he changed it. But but the 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 brilliance of what what they did and what uh, was the pursuit of two people who don't get to see each other except for one scene uh, and casting two actors as famous as Pacino and De Niro who have never really were in any movie together in a scene. Yes. It was just really made that film just extra special that way. Because there, there is a whole layer of, uh, of reveal of each, other, each other's characters. There's one scene that was cut out of the film which was after the first heist, the news reporter, uh, they had this helicopter footage. Yes. And they had helicopter footage of the of the ambulance blowing up by accident. And they just were shooting it, and the ambulance blew up. And and the character of Neil comes out, and you can't really see him on the screen because it's just green. Yes. And then, you know, there's a scene outside the, the heist of the of the uh, metals heist. Yes. Where he's, a, he's an infrared image. In the infrared, yeah. And, and so they, you know, gradually they start becoming more and more clear to each other. Then there's a thing of De Niro taking pictures of, of uh, Pacino, and there's never, there's never once one two shot in the film until the very last shot where they hold, where he holds his hand. Yes. It's the first time you see both of them in the frame at the same time. And that, you know, that's that's the stuff that kind of, you know, really makes the film special in a lot, in a lot of ways. You know, the uh, I remember God was all this stuff flying around about uh, they weren't together they didn't do that scene together yes. you know, they, they shot it separately you know and then and then michael had to start posting the kate manalini photos of them both together in the same yeah. frame and then those pictures of michael talking to them both in the in the uh behind the scene shots and stuff like that to go oh no they were they were together and they were together in the final scene as well yeah, because there were, you know, the because uh, there were there were two shots. There were, yeah, uh, you know, it was a wide shot to begin the shot. There was an overhead shot in the two of them, and then <clears throat> Michael went through, and we we wanted to remove all of the two shots from the film because it it occurred to him that the, um, that you know, in order to keep the pursuit going, that uh, it was better that they didn't they didn't come. And then the power of that last frame, no, oh. you know, at, at the airport. Is, is what what makes that pay off, and also a scene that could never be shot today, never. You know, oh, post, in a post nine eleven world, you could not ever shoot that scene in that same way ever again. It's an unbelievable I, document. I I don't know how they shot it back then. <laughs> wow. You know, it, it was uh you know because it was uh it was intense because uh, you know they they were at the airport. Yeah. You know, and I think they I think they had to be careful about their own lights not. Confusing the pilots, yeah. but that whole jet, the whole jet, it moves. You know, it's a, it's total, total bananas. Yeah, but it, it, it gives again. It, it didn't cheat. I mean, it, it gives the impact of that film and the, and the, and the strength of it. And it's just two the guys chasing each other at the, at the, and those lights. I just love that. It's such a big for such a big movie, um, to end so intimately, 
in this really just in a foot in a foot chase, um, yeah. and and you know at this crossroads, you know the the escape's right there, and he's got a he's just got a bear that the escape route's just flying and reminding him constantly over his head, and it's just yeah, I, and ca- catching that one shadow. Yes. You know, by the time of the judge seeing that one shadow, which is why Hannah Hannah wins the fight. I think uh, I think your wife's moment that it was worth it uh, is something that I'm going to remember from everything that you've uh, revealed today. I think that that's yeah. that's that's that moment where it resonates. It's uh, and 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 you don't have to have been the person making it or be a massive fan of these amazing performers and knowing it granular, but it's just that it can resonate with just anyone. It's it's an amazing mm-hmm. film. Yeah, well, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, the um, uh, and, and make it even working with George, you know, we knew it was time. My wife, my wife was production manager, so we wanted to move. Uh, you know, it was either New York or Los Angeles. We came out here, but one of the things I, one of the things that convinced me to move was seeing um, uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Yes, and at Dog Day Afternoon, there's a shot of Al at the end of the uh, film on on a trunk of the car. There was something about that performance. I said, I want to go and see if I can end up working with people like this. And, you know, I wanted to, very, very fortunate that, you know, I ended up having that, that particular dream and wish fulfilled, you know, because I, you know, and Heat was a perfect example of uh, something I imagined that I could be doing back you know, when I was back in Pittsburgh. And uh, came out here and was able to do it. Well, Speaking right now from Sydney, um, I never would have dreamed that I would be talking to Pascal Buber, the editor of my favourite film of all time and a masterpiece, Heat, and getting such rich insights. And uh, I'm going to go back myself and listen to you talk about Al Pacino's performance in that scene and Diane Venora. Um, Pascal, I know we've talked about this minute, and um, so I, I, I don't want to wrap it up, but I want to ask, would you come back for another minute along our journey because we would love, and I'm sure once our, our people who are listening get to hear some of your descriptions and some of your insights, that would be ravenous uh, to hear more. So would, would you, would you come back to a one heat minute for us um, along our journey? You mean would I want to come back and talk about a film I love? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yes. yes. No, absolutely. Look, no, absolutely. Pascal, I just want to say um, this is like bucket list kind of stuff. Thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Um, uh, well, thank you for being such a, you know, and you and, you know, as I told Joe too, that, you know, you, you do these things and it's, God, it was a long time ago. And you don't realize, that, you know, that the, the impact that you're still having now. This is true a lot with Romero's films because when they got released, there was no ancillary video, there was no ancillary markets. Yes. So they kind of disappeared. Donna, the day of the dead, played for three days and, Went away. So, now people know every every frame of that. Every frame of that movie, people adore. I think I think if uh, Romero fans are going to be probably screaming at me because they're hearing you talk and being able to talk about Romero. But guys, if I if I can encourage you to go and listen to the Movie Crit podcast because Joe and Adam really get into uh, Pasquale talking about that, and I know that you guys have lined up another time to talk about it because he just Joe just absolutely adores that film. But yeah, I mean, Heat Heat for me, my first viewing of Heat uh, as a kid in Australia. Australia was on VHS, um, and I and it grew in and it grew it, from from there with me watching it on VHS, watching on it, getting an opportunity to see it on like a big screen, on even just like a bigger projection. And the obsession is all mounted from home video. That's that's where the 
the, the depossession has come from there. So some of the folks I've been able to speak to, um, you know, there's been such a, a, a variety. You know, I've got a, fr- a friend, Shane, who's done the show, who was over in Chicago and saw it in Chicago. Alicia Malone, an Australian critic, lives in L.A. She's just done a one heat minute, talked about a special rooftop screening she recently did of heat in L.A. that had headphones on so that they couldn't hear the choppers that were flying around L.A. But people in L.A. flocked to this rooftop screening to show this quintessential L.A. movie in L.A. Um, you know, Joe talks about seeing it at the theatres, uh, a famous Australian editor as well, uh, Luke Doolan, who's still working and working in LA at the moment in Venice. Um, he talks about he bought the script to Heat before it came out and had it shipped to Australia. So he's got it somewhere. The script is at his mum's house in New South Wales in Australia um, before he saw the film at in theaters. So you know, it's a, it's a film that's had a phenomenal impact, and um, I feel really honoured to to be the the person who can uh, sort of keep this uh, stoke this campfire that people can come around and tell stories so thank you so much for being such an amazing uh participant and thank you for for being a part of it oh my, my pleasure absolutely my pleasure look uh guys you've been listening to one heat minute this is pascal buber a dream come true um for, for me i'm blake howard oneheatminute.com you want to subscribe rate and review the podcast please do and uh hopefully we'll talk to pascal again about joining us and uh, i can't wait for that again thank you pascal my pleasure Take care.